Welcome to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back in space. The Interplanetary Podcast, the exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. So, uh, welcome to the uh, weekly podcast, as it is now, Jamie. Weekly? Weekly. Whoa. The idea being, uh, listeners, is that, um, you know, whilst I'm sure all of you love uh, a three-hour podcast, we're just trimming things down for you. But there's so much going on that we're just going to do it weekly. Matt, is this show number nine? Yeah, it's show number nine. We're almost in double figures. Totally in double figures. Oh, my next, goodness. Next time. <laughs> next time. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Interplanetary Podcast, show number nine. So, uh, Matt, what's been going on? Uh, let's, get the, let's get the really big news out of the way as quickly as we possibly can. You're not going to mention Trump, are you? I am going to totes mention Trump. Uh, Go on, then. Uh, do you think it's more depressing for Europeans than it is for Americans? Hmm? Not at all. I think everyone in the world should be depressed. But hey, it's only for four years. <laughs> it hasn't started well with him appointing uh, uh, lots of climate change deniers to be on his board. No, that isn't good news, is it? But, uh, you know, maybe that's where NASA can play a big role, because, of course, they... Let's uh, hope so. They have their Earth Science uh, Division, which, uh, yeah. which which is apparently a little bit under threat because they're sort of saying, well, do, should NASA really be doing um, Earth Sciences at all? Maybe that should be handed over to the United States Geological Survey, the USGS, of course. Or over to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Easy for you to say. What does a Trump administration mean for space? Well, there's been some rumblings, haven't there? There's... Um, yeah, it looks like they're you know they're going to take a bit of a hard line, I would imagine, but it's the sort of vainglorious thing that that Trump might seize upon as a way of making his presidency seem remarkable in a sort of J.F. Kennedy kind of way. So, right, yeah, I'm, I'm I, I, let's just say I'm sceptical at best. We can only just hope and, and not panic too much until things actually start to happen. And then I think the right thing is to do is to do everything we can if these things do or don't happen. Does that make sense? There was, yeah, but I mean, there was a guy in the Trump campaign called Walker who yes. um, who said that there was a sort of nine key aspects to their space programme that they wanted mm. to sort of, And the one was a commitment to global space leadership. You know, and that's going to be difficult with... You can see that China are, are, are hot on the tails at the moment. Yeah. And the fact that Russia can't get men into space, men, you know, uh, people into space at the moment is a, a worry for America. I mean, Trump does seem that guy that would just want to win, you know? He wants to... He just loves winning. And I think that, you know, that, that could be quite a good thing for NASA because it sounds like he just wants to be better than every other country at everything. A- absolutely. I think that one of the real... It must. I would think that Trump will find it embarrassing that Russia and China are able to get people into space and America can't. So I'd imagine that that's going to really rile him. There's yeah. one thing. Um, uh, there's a few other things in their nine-point plan. But I wonder if there's going to be a shift back to um, the moon. 
that, ah, uh, that you reckon? Uh, yeah, I think they're going to, you know, this is now an opportunity for a long, hard look at the ARM program, the asteroid um, retrieval mission. ARM. Yeah. And I think they're going to have a look at that, and I think that's going to be the sort of thing that gets cancelled. And remember, they've got this big SLS, the giant new rocket space launch system that needs to have a mission. It needs something to do. Otherwise, that's going to get scrapped, Absolutely. and that and that'll be super embarrassing. So they need. Yeah. So it's either Mars or it's either the Moon. I, I think Mars is too early. So I think we're going to see a lot more concentration on the Moon in the next couple of decades. I wonder what's going going through uh, Elon's head. Do you think he needs to worry? I, d- I doubt it, does he? He is getting a lot of support from NASA, though. I mean, let's hope that that stays. Remember, Elon Musk represents a lot of things that uh, Trump represents, which is Americans making American goods and, and supplying American jobs. SpaceX itself builds everything in America. That's true. And it's totally self-reliant, and, and, and so... Whereas the United Launch Alliance gets their engines from Russia, as discussed with David Baker last uh, podcast. So in some ways, I think Elon Musk represents a kind of Trump dream. It definitely, uh, that kind of company, I think Trump will dig. That is kind of true. Let's just hope he doesn't use all those solar panels to blow up the Middle East, eh? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the thing for me is is anyone that is is a climate change denier, is often, uh, doesn't have the critical thinking to be able to really uh, understand science. And I think that maybe science will be in, in, in a bit of trouble. Yeah, well, scarily, he said, well, it's snowing in New York. We need global warming. And that wasn't a joke. I mean, this is terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could... Yeah. <laughs> let's just hope that that is rhetoric and, and a kind absolutely. of... Absolutely, absolutely. So let's move on. Now, one... Let's move on. Let's move on, because let, it, we, we'll, we just won't know whether Trump's a good thing or a bad thing for a bit, will we? I don't think. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> 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 There's a really interesting article. NASA Space Telescopes Pinpoint Elusive Brown Dwarf. The Brown Dwarf. Yes. Okay, Matt, so if, if the, our listeners haven't heard about this brown dwarf, can you give the background? Well, yeah, I mean, a, a brown dwarf, I suppose, is a little bit like uh, a failed star. So Jupiter, yeah. in it, Jupiter, in a way, is, is, is almost a failed star, where it's massive enough that if, if there was enough gravity at the centre pushing everything together, then fusion would start and it would become a star. And a, and a kind of brown dwarf is very much like that, where... It's not quite turned into a star. It's a giant planet, really. There's not quite a star. It's sort of in between. Yeah. Uh, and this story is about a thing. Is is three things that are interesting in this story. I think is brown dwarfs themselves are interesting, and also uh, interesting is micro lensing events. And this yeah. is when something very very massive, like these uh, brown dwarf stars. Uh, go in front of other things and magnify the light. So you can imagine that they're just like a lens where it bends the light in such a way that when it passes in front of something bright, it makes the brightness increase. Wow, okay. So um, these micro-lensing events mean that you're able to see things that are too dark to see with a telescope. Yeah. But they reveal themselves by acting as lenses with the bright stuff behind them as they pass in front. Interesting. Now... 
the second the, the second part's really interesting is that there's two telescopes involved with this. There was the Spitzer Space Telescope and the Swift. The Swift, yeah. yeah. Now Spitzer is a, an extraordinary telescope that is uh, one AU away from Earth. Now one AU is an astronomical unit, which means the distance between Earth and the Sun is an astronomical unit. So this thing is the same distance away from Earth doing its... Uh, and it's a, t- a space telescope, and it trails around Earth in, in an orbit around the Sun. Uh, wow. And the Swift Space Telescope is in uh, near-Earth orbit. And, the, and why that is significant is that they're so far apart that when they look at this micro-lensing event, they can get parallax in the same way that you can tell how far a tree is away. Is parallax um, like when you've had too many rum and cokes down the pub? <laughs> it's, it's more like when you have too many coolmints. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, yeah, so yeah, the, yeah, these, yeah. these two yeah, space nice. telescopes were used to sort of work out the distance to this, uh, to this brown dwarf. And I thought that was really interesting. That is very cool. I mean, wow, that is that is amazing. Telescopes, the, the the biggest telescope in the world, right, has uh, has been completed. Am I right? It's not the biggest telescope in the world. It's the biggest future space telescope. So this is a space telescope that's going up. Ah, okay. But it will be the biggest in space. In space, it will be by far the biggest. Yeah, when you see a picture of. Um, Hubble next the to James the, Webb Space Telescope. Next to the James Webb, James Webb. Then there are a com- almost a completely different scale. With telescopes, it's all about the surface area of the uh, uh, of the mirror that's capturing the light. And yeah. even a small change in radius actually makes an enormous amount of difference in the light that it collects because of the uh, pi r cubed. So there's you know there's a there's a cubed multiplier in there that means that you get an enormous amount more light for a small increase in radius. So when's this thing planning to be put in orbit? Do we know? Yes, so it looks like launch will be in about two years' time. Now, now they've kind of completed building it. So they've built this thing, and there's some glorious pictures on the internet of, uh, on obviously NASA's picture of the day, etc., of the finished James Webb telescope. And it's made of several hexagonal uh, gold mirrors, that all Looks fold very up. nice. Yeah, and they all fold up and they sit on a on a, a massive deck of radiation proof material, almost like sails. Uh, and um, that then sits in a Lagrange point a very, very long way away from the Earth. So what that means is that when they launch it see I find this really interesting because this is this is twenty years of work. And obviously, it's one of the most expensive objects ever built. It's an enormously complicated thing. But what is going to be very, very stressful is this: this thing has got to sit on top of a rocket. It's got to be launched, and then it's got to make make its way over to this Lagrange point, and then unfold, and then start working properly with absolutely no faults in it whatsoever. Yeah, that's terrifying. Well, well, particularly when you start reading about the tolerances of these things. So the mirrors have tolerances where if they're slightly out by the width of of like quarter of a hydrogen atom or something, it all goes wrong. It doesn't it, it'll, Yeah. Just like Hubble when it first launched had that focusing problem where the mirror was slightly out. 
which meant it, it, it was fairly useless. And they thought, well, this is a disaster until someone was able to go up in the space shuttle and fix it. So Hubble was a complete flop when it was first launched, and, and pretty much, you know, if it, if it had remained that way, NASA would have been in some serious funding trouble because it would have been such a total flop. Yeah. Whereas, well, there's really not much room for error here, there, is there? there? I would say that there is no room for any error whatsoever. So this is an, a profoundly ambitious uh, project. It's things like this that people worry about, because if it blows up or it doesn't work... I mean, the time and the money that's been put into something like this is enormous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're talking 20 years of work at the very minimum. Remember these things, um, you know, like when we were talking to Gerhard uh, from the from ESA about... Um, Rosetta. Rosetta. So when we were talking to Gerhard about Rosetta, yeah. you realise that this thing had really been in the offing for an entire working life of someone and I'm sure that's yeah. exactly the same with the James Webb telescope it, it is a lot of people's entire working life and of course this all rests on a rocket on a massive explosion that's got to get it into into space it's 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 phenomenal isn't it it absolutely is phenomenal and it does look you need to we'll put links up to the to the pictures of it it does look beautiful like a big giant honeycomb in space yeah and there's some really there were some really other there were some very interesting pictures where one of the pictures had a blurred out section of the uh, James Webb telescope and it, and it turns out that there's a, a there's a kind of secret mechanism uh, that's proprietary uh, to the American military to, to actually kind of keep these this, the secondary mirror in focus so this is this is cutting edge this is something we don't want those commies to see love that I'll tell you what I want to talk about Matt the egg rock <laughs> yeah, the egg rock. Tell me about the egg rock. So the egg rock, it's something that, that uh, got my uh, eye uh, as uh, curiosity trundled its way across the um, Martian surface. It stumbled yeah. it stumbled across this big black rock that looked nothing like everything else on the planet that it's come across so far. Any clues? Well, it, it fired its laser at it, of course, and sniffed it. Sniffed yeah. it with its uh, all its little instruments after firing this laser at it. Licked it. Uh, the theory at the moment is just like other black rocks that we would see on Earth. It's actually uh, comes from the either the asteroid belt or the, maybe the Kuiper belt. It's a uh, yeah, it's a, it's a meteorite basically that's landed on the Martian surface. So I wonder, if, I wonder if that's a first. I wonder if that's the first meteorite that's been found lying on the surface of Mars by any of these rovers. Absolutely, but again, it's a, it's a great little picture of a of a, a weird looking object on Mars, which undoubtedly, yeah, well, there'll be millions of YouTube clips of how NASA are uh, hiding secrets of. I was going to say, what are the conspiracy theorists saying? Is it a skull? Is it uh, what is it? <laughs> well, it, uh, well, it's proof. It's proof of a alien civilization on Mars. That... Of course, it is. Yeah. Get the event horizon. <laughs> so yesterday, uh, yesterday uh, we had the glorious Atlas V. Atlas V, yeah. And it was carrying a satellite called Worldview Four. Now we've nice. actually mentioned we have actually mentioned this on the, on on a previous podcast because it's massively delayed. This thing it hasn't. It's been 
but it was supposed to be June the 29th, then September yeah. the 15th, then September the 16th, and then and now it's finally been launched. Now it's something. When you look at the stats of this, it's another space telescope, but this time instead of looking out to space and trying to, uh, unlike the James Webb that that will try and look to the almost the beginning of of time, and because yeah. uh, it's so powerful, we might even be able to see atmospheres on exoplanets, that kind of thing. Uh, World View, World wow. View Four, of course, its name suggests that it's going to view the world, not exoplanet worlds, but our own world. And it's going to be flying at about 600, 617 kilometres high. And it's got a 30 centimetre resolution. <laughs> well, which is phenomenal, isn't it? That means that... That's insane. Yeah, so it's going to get some pretty neat snaps of the Earth. And it can skew 200 kilometres. So if you want to look at something, it can do. It can sort of go from London to Manchester uh, in less than 10 seconds to retarget. And it's going to add almost 700,000 square kilometres of image data every day to the library, which I think... Wow. <laughs> so it's... It, yeah, I mean, this this thing's a very, very sophisticated uh, satellite. And that went up on the Atlas V. And the Atlas... Just so you know, the Atlas V is the same uh, rocket that launched the Mars rover, Curiosity, we were just talking about, New Horizons... Yeah. That went past Pluto and more recently the Osiris Rex mission. So this thing is, you know, that is a workhorse. And do you know what's amazing about the Atlas V? It has, it's had a perfect mission success rate since. Don't jinx it, Matt. On its maiden launch in August 2002, perfect. And I guess that's United Launch Alliance don't tinker around as much as Elon Musk do with the design of that. So It's kind of similar to Gary Lineker's record with getting no yellow cards or red cards. That's exactly right. You kind of almost want ULA to retire the Atlas V so it, it, it finishes with that 100% record. Yeah, that's what you would want. Get, imagine the no claims bonus you'd get back. <laughs> well, brilliant. I, well, I wonder what rocket um, James Webb will launch on. So uh, one thing we should mention is just how many launches the Chinese have been doing recently. What they, what they've been up to? Well, the most recent of which is the Long March 11, and as we yeah. as we've discussed, Long March is after a long march that the Red Army had to make to get themselves yes. out of trouble. So don't you know? It's not a boring name at all. Unlike yeah, that, yeah, you know. So Long March 11, it's it's only the second time that that one's flown, and it's just one great big solid rocket booster that uh, launched a couple of X, uh, uh, satellites, one being an X-ray emission um, tracker that's going to, what that is, going to detect X-ray signals from 26 nearby pulsars, pulsars being what's left our, what a, a sort of star that spins very rapidly after a supernova. Uh, and it's going to create a navigational database uh, and and so what what it's what it's doing is mapping all these different pulsars so that when you're out in the solar system or out uh, going to Proxima C, say, you can use yeah. these pulsars as a form of navigation. So they're almost like um, uh, GPS satellites, but natural ones out in space because they're so rock solid and reliable that you can use them yeah to as as navigational pointers. And this Long March 11 flew up this uh, X-ray satellite 
you know, the XP Nav One to map all these things, and this is going to be a sort of ten-year project. Take that, Tom. Tom. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, that uh, Long March Eleven launch was straight on the back of the Long March Five. Uh, yes, launch. which has had its issues. It has had. A, yeah, it turns out. I mean, Long March Five. This is this is China's entry into heavy lift vehicles. So we're talking uh, the Delta Four Heavy. The Dragon Heavy, that kind of uh, lift capability, the Ariane Five. So it's uh, so the Long March Five has been a technical achievement, uh, a massive technical achievement for the Chinese, and it flew and it looked like it was a, a pretty amazing flight and and went without hitch. But it right. turn, turns out obviously there were a few problems, even though it was mission success. And I just loved the quote uh, from one of the uh, head engineers. Um, that uh, he goes. Have you, have you have you experienced such situations before? And he chuckled and says, "Well, now you know why my hair is all white." <laughs> so it sounds like it's been a stressful, uh, stressful yeah, mission. I think yeah. When you're when you've got um, when you when you're in when you're a rocket scientist and uh, you're firing up rockets, and you've got a fairly strict regime to uh, yes. please, I think it probably is quite stressful, don't you think? Yes, that is correct. Now, let's talk about SpaceX for a minute. Yeah, well, yeah, even though we talked about them a lot, uh, it looks like they finally have confirmed what uh, was a suspicion all along mm. about what, what actually caused that explosion. So we kind of did... Re- we had an exclusive on this, didn't we, Jamie? Last we time did, we Falcon about. 9, bless it. So, <laughs> so we had the exclusive. What we thought it was was the... Uh, yeah, oxygen actually not the liquid oxygen behaving badly in the composite fuel tank. Yes, uh, and uh, basically becoming solid and reacting with the carbon composite and blowing up essentially. Yes, uh, Elon Musk calls the problem surprising and said it had never been encountered in the history of rocketry, but it's not completely unexpected, and um, it had actually already been flagged up. So ah. yeah, the, it, it seems that there had been an email where 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 people were already actually worried about um, this particular thing, and, and there had been an email that had been sent before this explosion to to NASA saying that they were worried about the way that oxygen, liquid oxygen, was being launched, uh, being pumped into the tanks, and that there wasn't a, a recycling unit to make sure that there was an even distribution of heat through yeah. the liquid oxygen. So th- this has already actually been flagged up. And um, it's with the X-33 spaceship in the 1990s, they did have experienced cracks in the composites when they were using liquid oxygen, and they could never overcome it technically. And, um, and that's why that particular X-33, uh, the, the program demised. So it's not completely without precedent. So Elon Musk is slightly wrong there. Yeah, that's a bit of an embarrassing thing, isn't it? Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah. In fact, yeah, a panel of highly respected aerospace experts told NASA eight months before the accident that the lack of a recirculation pump aboard the Falcon 9 rocket could be a safety problem. Well, personally, I'm going to call the FBI and get them to check his emails. Yeah. Because that's just not right. <laughs> well, of course, it was an internal email about because eventually astronauts are supposed to be sitting on top of a Falcon 9. So he's got to get that right. And if there's safety concerns... Yeah. It, that astronauts never will fly on the Falcon 9 and Elon Musk has a lot of money uh, you know, on top of that 
Now, Elon Musk has said that, that now they've found this problem, now they've you know realised what the problem was, then the Falcon 9 should be flying by mid-December. And they've... and. And so they've already got uh, their manifest uh, to try and get this um, uh, thing rolling again. They've actually, they get this, they've got a backlog of 70 missions worth 10 billion US dollars. And uh, so we've got uh, SBX 10, 11, 12 and 13 for seven, uh, 2017. And these are the uh, resupply missions for um, uh, uh, the International Space Station. So, you know, they're... Uh, that it's starting, you know, they're starting to sort of try and break down this backlog of uh, missions. But if they keep having failures, you know, another failure will really, really, really uh, be catastrophic, I would think. So they've, yeah, they've got would, to start getting be. some more reliability into their rockets. Absolutely. Good luck. Good luck, team. But anyway, um, uh, next space station crew are going to launch yeah. on November the 17th. So that's soon. So let's read some names out. We've got astronaut Peggy Whitson, Oleg Novitsky and Thomas Peskey, uh, and that's the ESA, uh, the European Space Agency, uh, obviously will launch Thursday, November the 17th for a six-month stay aboard the ISS. That's really exciting. Um, I don't, we don't normally do this, but we've got some spacey things that I thought were, were really interesting. Yes. In the kind of last couple of weeks, we, we've, we've had both dark matter and dark energy coming under question. A lot of people get dark energy and dark matter mixed up or think that actually they're related, and really they're not. In layman's terms, Matt, what's the difference? Well, the difference is dark matter is to do with when we look at galaxies spinning, there doesn't yeah. seem to be enough matter to, to hold the things together, so not, not enough gravity to stop these things from just spinning and all flying off. In the same way that, you know, if you if you put some light pieces on some on a, ta- on a one of those things that you have at your house. What are they called? Lazy Susan. Is that what they call? <laughs> You're so posh. I know the one you mean. If you yeah, got yeah, 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 you know, if you start spinning your lazy Susan too fast, all your hummus and your cucumber dips all fly off. Please it. don't try this at home. No, so uh that's what if there wasn't any dark matter, that's what would be happening to galaxies. They'd just all fall apart. So there is there is definitely extra mass out there that we can't see. And the reason why we can't see it is because it's dark. So we have dark matter, and no one really knows what it is. There's quite a few candidates for it. Um, but someone has suggested that maybe it's the fact that we're seeing gravity in, wrong in the, in the first place, that gravity isn't a fundamental force, but an emergent phenomena. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So, well, which, which, is, which is interesting, because I'll give you another <laughs> emergent uh, phenomena, and that's heat. So when temperature... You, you get uh, you get more heat as microscopic particles move around. If you understand gravity as not as a fundamental force but as an emergent property of something, yeah, then you no longer need dark matter to solve all these problems. Now this is a radical point of view, but it's gaining a little bit of traction. I noticed on the internet, and it's not not on the internet, but amongst the science community. So I think it's uh, it's. Um, Really, really interesting, and this is uh, being spearheaded by a Eric Verlinde of University of Amsterdam. That actually might that be really interesting to see how that goes. Now, dark energy came under attack because um, in nineteen in in the sort of late nineties, uh, people won the Nobel Prize because they used um, supernova data. 
to prove not only was the universe expanding, but actually expanding at a greater and greater, greater rate. Now, this was, which, which basically meant that Einstein's uh, cosmological constant was a positive. And, and, and it was totally unexpected. Until that point in the late 90s, everyone was expecting the universe to finish in the big crunch. But now we know that it's not going to, it's going to, uh, it's going to suffer heat death. Well, it'll expand until it just turns into nothing. And oh, ev- in well, even what a way to go. Yeah, just rubbish way to go. So it's the uh, so that was uh, obviously loads of people won the th- three people won the Nobel Prize for that for their for their work on independently uh, looking at supernova and, and working out this um, ex- greater expansion. Now you got they've revisited that data and realised that it didn't have a, a greater statistical rigor than. than than was expected when you applied it to a lot more supernova that have been discovered since. And so it's dropped from five sigma, which which pretty much is proof, down to three sigma where you've got to be a bit cautious. We know no scientist would say this is now a fact on three sigma. And so everyone's going, oh, well, you know, dark energy is now... You know, it's it, it may be that maybe we don't need dark energy, but it's not as simple as that. And and actually, the, it, it's a classic example about how rubbish the um, science journalism is. Is that if you look at the data, it almost completely agrees with the nineteen the late nineties data that got the Nobel Prize. It's just that it, it reveals that actually, if on, on there's an outside chance that the cosmological constant could be zero, but they didn't win. They what the, the Nobel the, this whole dark energy didn't just come from this one line of evidence. There's lots and lots and lots of other things in the universe that have been measured by various scientists all over the world that suggest that there's dark energy. And if you bung all that information back into the pot, then you're back to your five sigma. This is a fact. So dark energy isn't going anywhere, despite what the newspapers say. It's here to stay, all right? Yeah, so well, it, it ain't so. going nowhere. It's but here it, to but, stay. But, it's, but nevertheless, it's a very, very important paper because uh, scientists will be poring over it about why, why that is, why, why that particular um, stream of evidence has become slightly weakened. So, so it's not an unimportant paper by any stretch of the imagination, but the way that the scientific journalism has interpreted it, interpreted it is not really entirely honest, as per usual. And now for something completely different. Matt, I'm going to throw a question to you. Are you ready? How do you go to the bathroom on the International Space Station? You know I've been wanting... To, to speak about this for for quite a few podcasts now, I'd like the lowdown. Oh, do you know what I love this one because I think a lot of people get upset by the very question. But at the end of the day, when 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 you actually read the answer, it's actually really really interesting. And no, you know, it's a human function that, that exactly we all do it. We just don't we just don't do it that many miles above Earth. <laughs> this article came from Space Scott. Dot com and I thought it was, I thought this was really interesting. Yeah, so Michael Fossum, who's done a couple of space shuttle missions, that's not that's not a euphemism for going to the toilet. No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm sure he's done way more than a couple of space shuttle missions. If it was a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's read through what he said. Okay, so you know, for for number ones, uh, he said uh, he uses a hose. Uh, 
to turn on the suction to pull the urine away, okay? Which is recycled. Here's the interesting thing, which some people may squeam at a bit. It's recycled and used for drinking water. Yeah, yeah, so it gets... I mean, you, you can't just take loads and loads of water up. So everything, get, all those sort of things get recycled so that, yeah, you get your water from your wee. Is that why they don't eat asparagus on the space station? Um... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether they don't. Only some people's yeah. wee smells after asparagus, Jamie. Really? Yeah. It's a, it's oh, a, I'm one of yeah, those it's people. A, it's a gene marker. Oh, oh, I am totally one of those people. Interesting. The, yeah, very interesting. But some people, it doesn't doesn't affect them. And they don't even know what you're talking about. Sugar puffs or... or um... The sugar puffs one? No way. I don't, I don't think I've ever eaten sugar puffs. I might have to go out and buy some to experiment. Don't forget all the honey the, All in the name of science. Uh, and yeah, for a number two, you perch on a solid waste container with a plastic bag in it, and uh, you seal the bag and push it into the container. Easy as that. Con- yeah, and then and then that container's changed roughly every ten days. Apparently, it breaks down quite often. Like yeah, once a month. You wouldn't want anything floating around like that. Yeah, so it's once a month the toilet breaks. Well, they earn their money that day, don't don't they? Well, yeah, uh, I, you know. As we've discussed, their their works hardly that hard. You know, like five days on, few hours here, weekend <laughs> yeah, on. You, I love how you think they're slackers. <laughs> so yeah, the, 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 I thought the really interesting one is how you do it on a Soyuz spacecraft. So when oh, you're actually cool. when you're really when you're actually rocketing towards uh, the International Space Station now. What's funny about that is a lot of sometimes it only takes a few hours to get up to the space station, but sometimes just to the, the way that the journeys and trajectories are, you might well, if you've it, got to go, you've got to go. Yeah, well, it might take two days, and obviously you've got to go in two days. Although what's interesting is a lot of the uh, a, a lot of them um, uh, is a lot of the astronauts have an enema. Uh, just before no the way, flight no to avoid the need for a number two on the flight. Um, wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the apparently the Soyuz toilet is very rudimentary and uses an airflow to pull the waste into a collection uh, to, or to, to collect the waste. Yeah. Uh, and rather than taking the urine into a tank with pre-treatment, the urine goes into a tank that literally has what appears to be foam rubber that absorbs the liquid. Oh, yeah. Like uh, a cat litter tray. Yeah, uh, and it's a, see. Um, I always thought that they they would wear nappies, but uh, human I, nappies. Yeah, but I guess not. I guess not. I don't. Uh, yeah, it doesn't look as though they do. And that's what I, that's what I thought. Because um, how do you get? There must be a quick release, you know, because you wouldn't get out of your spacesuit, would you? No. Uh, yeah, that's really odd. But, but the, the most amazing thing is that the, the fact that the astronaut uses a handheld device located in the orbital module of the Soyuz to give a little bit of privacy. And the other crew members move into the descent module <laughs> while the first crew member does his his or her business. Oh, that's brilliant. They must have some fun. Um, guys, do you mind if I just... Uh, could you give me five minutes? Yeah, it's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? And Fossum added that few astronauts use the solid waste collection system, uh, which is another handheld device, because, because of this practice of getting an enema before, an enema before the um, flight. So he doesn't well, know. Uh, yeah, I uh, someone must have used it though. It's hilarious. Yeah, it? but, yeah. Um, God, that's someone's job. That is facilitating job. the enemas of uh, uh, nearly departing astronauts. Wow, and Jamie. The, the most exciting thing that I saw that, that I saw in the news for this week 
is EM Drive again. Now, oh, yes. I, and I'm actually amazed that this didn't get more coverage, actually, because the um, the paper that we talked about, uh, in, not in the last podcast, but the podcast before, that was that's going to be released soon, has been leaked online, and you can drop, you can download it from a Google Drive somewhere, okay. uh, uh, which I have done, and it's a very interesting read. And uh, it looks like it does generate thrust. But what I thought was even more interesting... Mm. is that the IBT, the International Business Times, yeah. reported that the US Air Force is currently testing out a version of EM Drive on the X-37B. Now, we've talked about the X-37B before. It, it's a sort of military space shuttle-looking thing that goes up into space and flies around for years on time and comes back down again. Yeah. And apparently the EM Drive's on that being tested right now. And that is amazing. Even more extraordinary is the claim that it's actually on the Tiangong Two, the space oh. station that we talked about last podcast. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know the two the two uh, Taikonauts that are on that particular on Tiangong Two uh, are testing that out as we speak in the month that they've got up on board the Heavenly Palace. So, uh, yeah, so it looks like China and the US are both interested in, in this thing. And, uh, yeah, it's... Weird that it's not getting more press. It is, isn't it? Particularly considering it's a British invention by Roger Shaw, yeah. We need to shout more. Yeah. So, well, I think it's because people are very, very scared that this thing <laughs> shouldn't really work. So it's one of those things that is like, well, this is too... I don't know whether to touch it because you've got egg on your face for mentioning em drive because it seems such a kind of you know it's a bit like those bracelets that channel energy and and yeah. so that you don't get car sick it's that kind of ludicrousness <laughs> and <laughs> my mum gave me one of them as a kid i don't think it i don't think it worked that much no no and there's that bloke who thinks he can teleport and things like that and gets a lot of interest with his metal bracelets so i think it's got a, it's got a hint of that about it hasn't it but um Apparently not. Apparently there is quite a lot of interest in that. Well, good on you, EM Drive. Yeah. Now, uh, something that we've talked about on a couple of podcasts, Jamie, that has finally resolved itself, and that is Muos 5. Remember that one? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, that actually went up on an Atlas 5 as well. So, you know, it was always going to get up there. It was always going to get up there. So this is the this is the M O M U O S Mobile User Objective System. That is exactly right. And remember, we talked about it that, it that it's sort of as part of this ridiculously expensive American American military satellite system. That's right. Uh, and um, it, it had failed to get into orbit. It was nowhere near its orbit, and its and its kind of um, thrusters to get up to the orbit didn't, didn't seem to be functioning properly. Yeah. Uh, but we said that, that this had happened before and, and that eventually they're able to kind of reconfigure these things. Apparently it has finally made its way to its operating orbit, which is good, you know, work. Which is good work, which has maintained Atlas V's 100% <laughs> mission success rate. Absolutely, another one. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's in geosynchronous orbit now, as of June 29. It's my personal favourite orbit. <laughs> well, I believe it was Arthur C. Clarke that um, Arthur C. Clarke of British Interplanetary Society fame that uh, first sort of was really banging on about geosynchronous orbit. So that's probably why it's your favourite, James. That's definitely why it is. You just know me so well. 
Well, thanks for listening. And, and as always, you know, uh, please email in your questions. We love reading them. Do it. Do it. Jamie, it's yeah. been a pleasure having you. Yeah, it's been emotional. And uh, we'll see you for number 10. We will, when we will actually definitely be in double figures.